0: Hi, and welcome to the Tales of Adventure podcast. I'm Chris, your host, and every month I'll be interviewing inspiring adventurers about overcoming hardship, taking risk, and doing it differently. The podcast aims to document the learning that's got these standout individuals to where they are now. Today's guest is charity founder Sam Siddiqui, who's embarking on a hugely inspiring world first endeavour in a few months' time. After unofficially becoming the first Afghan to summit the highest mountain in the US, Mount Denali in 2021, Sam will try to become the first Afghan to summit Everest in the spring of this year. The focus of this climb is to raise awareness and funds for the Afghan Peaks charity to help in its mission of promoting skiing, climbing and mountain sports in Afghanistan. He has degrees in economics and political science from MIT and now shares his experiences growing up in Afghanistan and how he wants to help grow mountain sports in this often misunderstood country. Hey, Sam. Welcome to the Tales of Venture podcast. Hey. Uh, it's great to have you here. Excited to be here. It's 9am in the in the US at the moment, is that right? It is.
1: Just dropped my daughter off at school and, and got back to uh, join the podcast.
0: Perfect, perfect. Well, I'm super excited to hear about your Everest expedition, um, particularly as you're going to take a non-conventional route, which I'm really, really keen to dive into. Um, however, I'd love to hear about how you first got into, into your mountaineering journey.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm from Afghanistan, and I'd love that the story of my mountaineering could be that you know I was born in Kabul at you know 2,000 meters, surrounded by these beautiful peaks, and and that's what led to mountaineering. Uh, but you know the reality is I left when I was a year old. I'm also American, so when the Soviets invaded, I, I had to leave. Um, so the real story of mountaineering is uh, that my I have an American aunt who lives up in Alaska, and from the age of like four or five, I used to go spend every other summer up in Alaska. So, you know, we just go on little hikes. Um, I remember I had a babysitter once who was up in the mountains and we'd go look at bear poop and moose poop and (laughs) run around in the woods. And you had that beautiful view of Denali, um, and and just a lot of mountains on the horizon. So that kind of connection to Alaska is kind of what got, got the vision for it. Um, and then later when I, when I moved to Afghanistan for work, uh, the former country manager who I spent a lot of time with, a really, a really wonderful gentleman named Ishar, uh, he told me these tales of going to Concordia in Pakistan. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of Concordia, but it's this place in the Karakoram, which is the launching point for lots of great hikes. And it's just you know, miles and miles even to get to Concordia. So he, he gave me I'm this ready. beautiful vision of Concordia. And he told me how as a, a young Pakistani guy, just on his own, he arranged the visa and flew out to Alaska just to walk around Denali. That's how much he, he loved the mountains. Wow. And that was, that was really wow. inspiring to me. And I said, look, if this guy was able to do that without all the infrastructure, wh- why can't I do this if I also have the love for it, right? Um, yeah. <clears throat> so that's when I started thinking about it. And then later when I moved to uh, Kuwait, I had an American friend who just loved climbing and he invited me out to the Alps. And uh, with he and his family and some friends, we went and did um, Mont Blanc. And so Mont Blanc ended up being my real first mountain. Uh, And and then from there, I just would go to the Alps and just kept on picking up climbing.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, It's such an interesting story because I can imagine growing up and seeing Denali, this huge, it's a monster of a mountain. I've not been up close to see it but um it's obviously on the the um seven summits challenge so I'm kind of well aware of of people who've climbed it and I've also heard many stories saying that it's actually harder than Everest that Everest is a um is a bit of a a quote unquote walk in the park by comparison how how did you find you know climbing you've climbed Denali yeah that's how I climbed Denali in 2021
1: uh, so I've heard similar things. So it really depends on the style in which you climb. Um, now, Denali yeah. dictates that you climb in a certain style, that there, there are not uh, port high-altitude porters available on Denali. Uh, there are guides, and maybe they'll carry a little bit more than you. But if you're doing Denali, you pretty much have to carry your own weight. Um, and what that means is you start off with about 130 pounds of gear when you land. So that's 60 or 70 oh, wow. in your pack and 60 or 70 in a sled that you're pulling and and that takes a very specific type of training uh, and it's different from Everest um, where depending on again your style I mean you you can go heavy on Everest um, but more likely you're going to be hiring high altitude porters and then you're not carrying that super heavy weight Um, certainly Denali doesn't have the super high altitude that Everest does so you don't need oxygen for Denali Um, and and the acclimatization isn't as intense uh, but it's still a lot of climbing because uh, Denali's prominence is quite high in terms of where you start climbing. You start climbing at around uh, 2,000 meters going up to 6,000 meters. So that's a good 4,000 meters of, of vertical you climb. Um, so that's yeah, slightly yeah. more than Everest where you're starting a little above five. Um, or no, maybe it's still a little bit less than Everest. But but it's equivalent prominence, you could say, in terms of the amount you're climbing uh, and just, just yeah. a lot more weight.
0: Yeah, and I guess you've got this this extra challenge of of pulling this all this pulling and carrying this weight just to the start line. So it's almost like the equivalent of kind of running a race before you get to the start line of a marathon in some ways. Yeah. From from what I understand, what I hear about. Yeah. It. So
1: with with uh, Denali, what happens is that you fly in on a snow plane. So it's a plane that has wheels and skis, which is its own special thing. Oh, cool. <laughs> so you, you land on a glacier, but the rules of the national park are that. You're not allowed to land a commercial plane in the park, so it lands a little uh-huh. away from where you'd actually start your climb. So the first day of of Denali is a pretty long hike, and it's not you're not gaining much vertical. Um, you don't do you're not you are not gaining much vertical with 130 pounds. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I was gonna say so, that. some people do do single pushes, but once you establish that first camp uh, at 7,000 uh, and you really start climbing. Then you start doing. Uh, uh, you'll split your pack in half. So you'll climb up, bury your pack halfway, and then climb back down, sleep in your tent. The next day, carry your tent past your stash, go to the next camp, set up your next camp. The day after, you'll go back down, dig out what you put in the in the snow, and bring it back up to camp. So it's a, it's a bit of drudgery doing that. Uh, but it is good from an acclimatization perspective. You're, you're forced to acclimatize because yeah. you're going up and down a bunch of times.
0: Yeah, it, it almost it reminds me somewhat of um, kind of leadership and management training, you know, where you've got the, uh, what is it, the, 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 the metaphor you use is like a, a fox, a chicken and an egg or something yeah. like that. And you've got to move the, the chicken and the egg across the river without the fox eating the two. And it's obviously, it's, it's the same, similar because you're obviously, you're carrying a, a huge amount of weight. Vertically, you know, to a, to a base camp and then obviously to a, to another higher camp and then obviously making sure that you can sustain yourself the next night and get the benefits of acclimatization. So it's it adds a level of complexity that I think, you know, kind of mount alpine mountaineering certainly you know doesn't have that kind of that same challenge about it. Does yeah, it? and
1: I, I mean one of the key things, and it's a lot easier now with GPS, but where is your stuff, right? So yeah, yeah so there yeah. are these incredibly smart crows up there. <laughs> And if you don't bury your stuff deep enough, the crows will get in there. So you got to really oh, deep, wow. dig a good four, four, five, six feet into the snow, and then you mark it with with wands. Um, but if there's big snow, the wands can get covered. So so there's a lot of in the old days there was a lot of calculation, and you and somebody would say, "Oh, pick up my stuff," and they would kind of tell you where it is. <laughs> You'd be digging looking for it. <laughs> I think now with GPS tagging. If you're well organized, it's not as big a deal. But you know, just knowing knowing where you've buried your stash was was an adventure in itself. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's I've, I, do you know, I've, I've, of all the things that I've read about Denali and mountaineering in general, I've never heard of this problem before. In that you've got you know you've got this real problem trying to find your stuff without without the crows obviously like ripping it apart and taking it away, and obviously things like you know things like a GPS communicator or something, you know. Um, to, to find the, the approximate location, obviously, no coordinates can be like hundreds, hundreds of meters out by one digit. Some days, <laughs> can't they? So, if you get the wrong coordinates, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're literally digging the size of a, you know, a football or soccer field, trying to find somebody's gear or, or your own gear. So, yeah, that's that's a level of complexity I've never even thought of. Um, I know we, we've kind of touched on it already, but um, I kind of love to hear more about the, the reasons why you're going to climb Everest because there's a very special reason which I'd love to.
1: Yeah, my main reason for climbing Everest is I would like to use the news coverage of the first Afghan Ascent of Everest to bring attention to Afghan peaks. It's a nonprofit that's working to develop mountain sport in Afghanistan. Um, I plan to pay for my own trip, so it's it's not about raising money for my trip. Every dollar that we raise will go directly to the activities that are going to grow mountaineering and skiing in Afghanistan. Um, So, for example, we had a ski race uh, the last couple of years. I use the Denali uh-huh. funds to help pay for that. Um, this year we got a donation from Afghan Sports Trust um, and they challenged uh-huh. me to, hey, let's just not just have a ski race, let's do some more. And what we came up with was to hire a bunch of carpenters in different villages to build wooden skis. And, and then we'll be distributing wow. those wooden skis to get more participants. Because yeah. what, what I'm thinking about for Afghan, Afghan Peaks, it's not just about climbing. I think climbing is great and, and I want climbing and skiing to happen. But mm-hmm. Afghanistan is a poor landlocked country, and it's got two neighbors uh, in China and India that have a population of more than a billion people each. So Afghanistan is yeah. never g- going to be competing in terms of scale production, right? It's, it has agriculture. It will have mining. What else does it have? Well, it has these beautiful mountains. Um, yes. So yeah. I want to invest now in the precursors to mountain tourism so that when the tourist economy comes will be having Afghans directly benefiting from that tourism. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. independently of that, it's great to see people enjoying their mountains, right? So if you're poor or rich, you can enjoy skiing a powder day, and I think that's adding value to the country. Um, so so that's the main reason. I, I do love climbing. I'm excited to see the Himalaya. Um, there are a ton of mountains I would love to climb, but I think the news coverage that climbing the highest mountain in the world gives uh, is something that can really benefit growing afghan mountain sport and that's my main driver
0: yes yeah and and i think probably just to add on to that i've i've been to bamyan um the area you're talking about where you hold the ski race before and it's is incredible that the hindu kush has a special place in my heart um having snowboarded there with you know with with um mountain guides and kind of you know had this level of hospitality that you don't i've never had anywhere else before you know it was it was utterly incredible and obviously the the scenery as well you know there's incredible lakes there's incredible um rivers there's incredible um just you know kind of culture and and this real vibe about it that um is is intoxicating um, so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm super keen to kind of follow this journey that Afghan Peaks is on, um, that's been kindly supported by the Afghan Sports Trust as well, because I think it's, it's such a, a a good thing to bring, you know, kind of attention to that area. Um, that's you know People look past it already, don't they? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a really wonderful ski race, but it's a bit of a shocker. So I, I was living in Kuwait the first time I participated in 2018, and coming from mm-hmm. sea level, uh, the real skiing starts at 3,000 meters. So, so yeah. you land in, in Bamiyan you're staying in a hotel at 2,500 meters, you're kind of struggling up the stairs to acclimatize, yeah. and then you drive <laughs> up for another half an hour, and they're at 3,000 meters, then you start walking up the mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I, when I did this ski race, uh, I started off very, very much at the back as I'm walking up, and these little Afghan shepherds, these boys who are running up and down the mountain, some of them had like walked four hours that day to get to the race. They're just running up the mountain ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to, to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I'm I, yeah, looking forward to, to hearing more about it. I mean, it. there's and, still um,
1: space. You know, you may have heard of Untamed Borders, but they've always brought participants from outside to participate. And and they still have a package open today. So if you want to go uh, ski the Bamiyan ski race this year, uh, there's still yeah. some space for... To join untamed borders, and they'll take you out, and you can participate.
0: Fantastic! Well, great. I'll get onto their website. I'll, I'll make sure this this level of information is in the show notes as well, because obviously it's quite it's it's um critical to kind of bring bring this kind of level of attention to it fantastic stuff Well so I guess it, it does lead me on to my, my next question it's how are you preparing for Everest you, you, you mentioned about going from sea level to um, kind of 3,000 meters in, you know, in a very few days um, how are you using that background knowledge to pay for Everest in the, in, the, in the coming
1: months? Yeah so there's there's a few parts we, we can talk about the technical, the fitness and the altitude. Um, let's cover the technical side first. So because I've been doing a lot of mountaineering, uh, I'm not super focused on the technical side. So uh, the work I'd done in the Alps, kind of walking across glaciers and crampons, walking in mixed terrain, um, getting used to being on a rope team, just doing a lot of climbs beforehand, I think made me ready for that. The piece that I didn't have until I did Denali, which, which was kind of a separate piece, is the winter camping. So how do you take care of yourself in the cold? Uh, it's a little bit less yeah. of a challenge on Everest because you have so much support and there is there is extra gear that people are carrying, uh, but there's still a lot of elements of self-care that are super important because if it's negative 20 or negative 40, uh, you can't just be brave and say, oh, I'm going to take off my glove and handle this. <laughs> That's being silly. Um, and, and it's not about just kind of overexerting yourself. If you've exerted yourself, then you need to take care of yourself and rest because it's it's not a single day push. No, it's a it's a couple of weeks, and keeping yourself healthy, and and taking care of yourself in the cold are skill sets that you need to build. It doesn't doesn't come naturally to city livers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was there were people who I saw they couldn't summit Denali because they were, let's say, not comfortable with how you relieve yourself in a tent. Right, but there's a process. To yeah, that. and if you're not used to that or if it stresses you out and it's your first time doing it, that's not great. Um, so getting used to how do you deal with yourself in a tent, in a cold situation, that that's kind of one that sometimes people don't, ex- don't expect. But I feel like I have that in the bag, so I'm not super worried on the technical side. On the fitness side, again, mm-hmm. I think Denali was, was a pretty high bar. And so my climbing guide, I said, look, if you've done Denali, I'm not worried about your fitness. Just do that same thing. Um, mm-hmm. and it's worthwhile kind of thinking about how, how that fitness journey works. So when I climbed, uh, Mont Blanc for the first time, I was doing some training, yeah. I was running. Um, but as I got to the top, those last few hours, I was really bonking. Like I, I struggled a lot. Yeah. Um, same,
0: yeah. Same experience. on Mont Blanc. <laughs> th- thankfully I was kind of young <laughs> enough to just kind of
1: gut it out and I, and I made it right down, had a great experience. Uh, but it was, it was rough. So I started looking into it more. Um, and there's a book I've used called The Uphill Athlete. And, and then mm-hmm. you can subscribe to this website, Training Peaks, and they have the Uphill Athlete workout built in. So it's a twenty, they give you a specific 24-week cool. training plan. So for six months, you just get an email every day and you do what the email says. But Great. The, the guidelines <laughs> for it, the biggest issue is about building your aerobic base, which is zone two. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm running, I'm training. But if you're not running the right way, you're not actually helping yourself. Because quite often we always want to push ourselves. And you push mm-hmm. yourself and you might be in what's called zone three or zone four. And that's not going to give you the training benefits you're looking for. Because we have two yeah. different energy pathways in our system, right? We have the anaerobic and we have the aerobic. And aerobic, uh, sorry, the anaerobic is just super explosive. It gives you energy. You can tap into it so quickly that we just naturally yep. use our anaerobic. And then we like that feel of we've pushed ourselves so hard we felt we've accomplished something. Um, and, and there are reasons why you do want to train your anaerobic system, but sometimes it's at the expense of your aerobic. So for mountaineering, yeah. it's almost exclusively anaerobic fo- the aerobic focus. And so what you're doing is you find this zone two heart rate. For me, it's kind of this 144, 145. And almost all my training mm-hmm. has to be at that rate. And just to give you a feel for what yeah. that means, it's while you're jogging or walking, you can have a comfortable conversation. And at the end of the yeah. workout, you actually don't feel that tired. So I can go out for a two-hour jog and finish and then go to activities. I'm not supposed to be feeling tired. And, and so what happens yeah. to your body over this period is you shift from kind of burning ready energy to burning fat. And burning fat, it's a slower yeah. process. So it doesn't give you the energy immediately, but it can just go on and on because you're not producing lactose at the same time. And okay, yep. and so what you what your body does is at the muscular level, you're building up mitochondria in those muscles, kind of making them slow twitch muscles, and building up the enzymes mm-hmm. that can process the fat. Uh, so then you can really just go on for longer and longer. So okay. a typical uh, Sunday for me, which is a longer day, it might be three hours of uh, walking, jogging, so as soon as I hit a hill, uh-huh. if the hill's at all steep, I'm going to start walking to keep my heart rate at the level it's supposed to be, and it, it yeah. sucks when you go out with your running buddies, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and quite frankly, I have to give up running with them because people are just used to their certain pace, and you realize, yeah. you know, it's not going to help me on Everest, so I'm actually going to just start, I'm going to walk up this hill, and my buddies can go on, and I'll cut, cut yeah. the course and meet them later, but uh, but you know, I'll go do a three-hour day. Uh, now I'm working into doing that three-hour day. Might have some weight attached to it, so we're starting off with maybe 20 pounds, mm-hmm. we'll go up to 30 and 40 pounds later, so that you're just really doing specific things that build up this uh, cardio basis. The other yeah, another yeah. side of it is the strength training, and and the strength training for mountaineering is again a little bit counterintuitive. So when we think about muscle training, a lot of times we're just uh, say, hey, I'm gonna rip apart my muscles and grow them. That's what muscle training is. And if you're bodybuilding yep. or you wanna get big, that's what you do. But in mountaineering, you don't actually wanna carry all that extra weight up the mountain. So what they focus you on is max strength training. So here, what you're trying to do is just increase the muscles you use. So typically what we're doing when we're lifting is we're only using maybe 10% of our muscles uh, because mm-hmm. of the kind of the, the mind muscle connection. But if you focus on your max strength in your training sets, uh, you can actually recruit up to 18, 20% of your muscles. So for the same muscle mass, you can be stronger. The stronger you are, the more movement you can make in the mountain without stressing yourself out. So it's, again, about keeping everything aerobic so that I can – so I'm doing step-ups with 150 pounds now. So that means I can do a step-up with 120 extra pounds and not be freaking myself out and staying in that aerobic zone for longer. Um, yeah, yeah. And then the last thing is altitude uh, So I have a young daughter And I have a wife that doesn't want me away for a long time So kind of the, <laughs> yeah. the six to eight weeks That it would normally take to do Everest Doesn't, doesn't work for me And I do have yeah. challenges with altitude uh, I, I wasn't able to summit Kilimanjaro Because I, I tried to go too quickly uh, Part of my mm-hmm. struggle in Mont Blanc I think was acclimatization I got lucky on Denali yeah. We had two well-placed storms That gave me extra days at 11 camp and 15 camp uh-huh. Uh, so so that helped my acclimatization. So for Everest, uh, I'm going with Furtenbach Adventures. And they're mm-hmm. one of two companies that do what's called a flash climb. And what that means is you go up faster. And the way they allow you to do that is they send you a tent beforehand. So it's an acclimatization tent that reduces your level of oxygen. And so yeah. over yeah. six to eight weeks, you... Uh, you know each week you're reducing the amount of oxygen you sleep with and it might reduce your training you might not sleep as well but it says that's fine the bigger mm-hmm. thing is to just get acclimatized and so you can show yeah. up to Everest base camp pre-acclimatized to seven thousand meters so yeah. that's
0: yeah because you, you've grown those extra red blood cells that actually carry the oxygen kind of around your system doesn't it yeah i think i think yeah. there's red
1: blood cells there's other stuff that goes on it's not just a single part like so our, our yeah. systems are quite complicated um, so when I was young, I was diagnosed with thalassemia minor. Um, uh-huh. Now, it's not a big deal here in the U.S., so I haven't had doctors be able to tell me much more than that. But yeah. it is kind of, a, kind of a blood issue where my hemoglobin is, might, might be slightly misshapen. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I excrete them faster. So, so I, I, I wonder if I'm going to struggle to build up my red blood cells. Um, but what I understand is it's not just the red blood cells. There's a whole bunch of different things going on in your body. That lead to this acclimatization uh, yes yeah. but it's it's beyond me to go into the full science of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah I've, I've got a
0: huge a huge interest in the um in the background behind this stuff so when you started talking about uh so zo- you know zone three the kind of the lactate threshold um the glycogen obviously in your in your fast twitch muscles that sort of stuff it's a, a huge interest of mine um for the, I, I did that when i was training for the marathon desabs and the the um, mont blanc and kind of other endurance events as well you know i, t- I took a real drill down into the detail in the same level that you have by sounds But you know to understand well what's what's going on in my body at the time how can i make this better how can i optimize myself for you know for this challenge that i'm trying to put me through and i'm, I'm right now focusing on doing the silk road mountain race a, a 1700 kilometer mountain bike race it's probably sometime next year um using the same principles as well so yeah hearing hearing it you know, come from another person actually is kind of, it's, it's hugely reassuring because it makes me know that I'm not, um, you know, I haven't got the wrong understanding of it. Super interesting to hear about your how you're preparing for Everest. It leads me on to my next question is how will you be climbing it? And that is kind of your your plan for getting to the summit because I know it's slightly unconventional also.
1: Yeah, so my plan, uh, again, we're working with uh, Furtenbach Adventures in, in flash style is to climb from the north side. Uh, so that is from Tibet. Uh, which is controlled by China. Um, and it's been interesting because China has been closed uh, for a while because of COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. And so for, I think for the last two years, there haven't really been a sense from the north side. Uh, the, unders- yeah. the belief is that they will be opening up the north side this year. And our belief is strengthened by the fact that in general, they've opened up to COVID. Obviously, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, death that they're experiencing right now from that. But yeah. if, they're, if they are open, then it's likely that they'll be opening the Everspace Camp from the north side as well. And mm-hmm. it's a little bit interesting because, you know, historically, the north side actually produced more deaths uh, in, oh, in wow. the previous years. And that was counterintuitive to me because I'm climbing from the north side because I don't want to die. And, yes. <laughs> and so yeah. I was trying to figure out why why, <laughs> why was it producing more deaths. And what I can gather, and this is a fact, but but what I could gather is that the north side used to be a lot less expensive. And Uh so people who didn't necessarily have the money to hire guides, but really wanted to climb Everest, they just go from the north side because it was a bit cheaper. And so Uh some of them might not have been preparing correctly, or they didn't necessarily have the skill set to plan their whole trip themselves. And then they would leave themselves exposed and, and in a bad situation. So, so that was yeah, part yeah. of it, and it was a little bit like instead of the Wild West, it was the Wild North. Um, yeah. The other piece of it is that you can basically drive up to five thousand meters, right? So, and today it's a highway, but even in those days, you could drive on, on a road up to, they call it Driver's Camp at five thousand meters. <laughs> yeah. Hey, really? <laughs> so you know, remember how hard it was for us to climb uh, Mont Blanc at four thousand eight hundred, and how we were dealing with altitude infections, yeah. driving right up. <laughs> And, <laughs> yeah. and you can imagine that if somebody hasn't acclimatized correctly, they're suddenly stressing themselves out just to be at base camp. And they're like, well, I'm here. Yeah. I don't have the money. Let's start climbing. And they just get themselves into the red and they get into dangerous situations. Whereas on the south side, yeah. it's more typical, especially if you don't have money, is that you're, you are you got to walk in. And, and that walk yeah, in yeah. helps you to acclimatize in the same way on Denali. All that extra walking is helping you acclimatize. So,
0: yeah, I, th- I think... Off the, top of my, sorry, off the top of my head, I think I think it's 1% um, less oxygen in the air for every, what, 100 metres above 1,800 metres, I think. So, so I think, what, about a third less air if you drive up to 5,000 metres roughly, which obviously you can see now, is is they're almost flashing, um, not flashing, that's probably the wrong term, they're, they're, they're driving up to 5,000 metres and going for a lightning attempt on the summit mm-hmm. at, what, 8,848, um, and... You know, obviously, just going from zero, you know, 100% oxygen to 70% oxygen, to then obviously, was it 20% oxygen at the death zone of Everest, from off the top of my head? But yeah, it it makes sense what kind of everything you're saying. Yeah,
1: so so that's why historically there were these extra deaths on the north side. Um, And again, it's counterintuitive. The reason I didn't want to climb on the south side is that you have to climb through the Kumbu Icefall potentially multiple times as you're doing your acclimatization runs. And to me, the Kumbu Ice Fall is an objective danger. There are these seracs that, yeah. at any time, it's called an ice fall. The ice can just fall on you, and, and and it's happened. Yeah. So I would prefer not not to be putting myself at that risk, and I prefer not to be putting Nepalese porters at that risk for my sake. Uh, so that's why yeah. I like the idea of the northern route. Uh, but I, then I was like, well, why all these deaths, and and why are the deaths decreasing on the north side? Well, the Chinese decided they didn't like that, and so they started cracking down on who could be a tour operator on the north side. So they greatly reduce yeah. the tour operators and they have requirements that tour operators are you know, much more careful. Um, I read one book by, I think, Mark Sinat where you know, he, he was trying to climb and there were these really people who weren't ready to be on that mountain. I think they were trying to take a group of young kids up and they were stalling out on the line. And, and suddenly yeah. if you're at 7,000 meters and somebody ahead of you isn't prepared to use an ascender And they don't really know how to use their crampons and they're freaking out. It's very bad for them, but it's also bad for you because if you're just standing still, you could be getting cold. You could be running out of oxygen. And so now that there's a lot fewer operators, I would expect there to be much fewer crowds. And that is very important uh, for my safety and and my summit attempt as well. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we've seen the previous few years of, I mean, prior to COVID have shown the the kind of queues that were on Everest from the, from the, the south side wasn't there we've got um, the photo from NIMs who you know who shot um, a big queue I think over the the Hillary step mm-hmm. um, you know that led all the way to the summit you know and it, it made it made like the, the national newspapers front page here in the UK and I think around the world as well yeah. so yeah that, that kind of that, that queuing and that exposure and the hypothermia effect now I think is acutely known by not just the mountaineering community but by you know by the world writ large.
1: Yeah, um, so then so that's a little bit about the south side. So just to give you an idea of the itinerary, we're supposed to arrive in Kathmandu uh, and get our Tibet visa there, and then fly to Lhasa. Mm-hmm. So that takes a two or three days, and then yeah. we'll drive to Shigatse. So Shigatse is at three thousand eight hundred meters, um, uh-huh. and spend the night, and then drive to the drivers camp or base camp at five thousand two hundred meters. Um, yeah so I just looked up on Google it says that that's 17 hours of driving now what does that actually mean you know 15 to 20 hours I could say um, yeah and, but just to put it in perspective we already we already mentioned Mont Blanc is 4,800 meters you know for your listeners who are in the US the highest point in the uh, 48 48 states is Mount Whitney at 4,400 meters so our drivers are just hanging out at the top of some of the highest mountains in the US and Europe um, Wow. <laughs> And so now we've, let's say, taken five days to get to base camp. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll take another two days to hike up to advanced base camp, which is at 6,400 meters. So now Mm -hmm. we're getting ready to start climbing. And we're already higher than Denali. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Incredible. So from there, uh, because we're pre-acclimatized, we don't have as many acclimatization runs as would be typical. Uh, For for the longer routes, but there is still an acclimatization Mm -hmm. run So we'll take one rotation to the north coal and the north coal is at 7,000 meters Um, Mm -hmm. And after that we'll go back to base camp to recover Uh, And then we just wait for the weather window And I think we should have time in the schedule for one or two attempts, hopefully just one attempt Um, And first you'll kind of retrace your steps to ABC and then to the north coal and above the North Coal mm-hmm. is Camp 1. Uh, which And it's a pretty steep glacier climb to get up to the North Coal. So it's, it's nice to be able to camp after that. Uh, yeah. And then you move on to Camp 2, which is going to be at 7,800 meters. That's after kind of following the North Ridge up to the Northeast Ridge. Um, and then after Camp 2, you get to Camp 3 at 8,300 meters. And after mm-hmm. that is where you get to the crux of the climb. So there are, they call them steps, which are kind of pretty vertical uh, things you've got to climb up. So there's a first, yeah. a second, and a third step. Um, the second step is basically the crux of the climb. Um, but again, we're not talking about full-on uh, wall climbing here. We There will be ropes set up, and we'll have something that's yeah. called an ascender. Uh, the common language yeah. there is called a Jumar. And so you have a, a rope that you manage yourself with, uh, and, and you're probably tied to your rope team as well, so you're going to have a couple security points. Uh, mm-hmm. And they've also installed... A ladder. Now, it seems easy to talk about climbing a ladder. We've all climbed ladders. It does get a little bit more complex when you have all these ropes around you. Uh, You're up over eight thousand four hundred meters, and you've got on these big clunky mountain boots and crampons, which are basically spikes sticking out of your feet. You're trying to navigate rungs of a ladder. (laughs) So it's still it's it's still going to be hard. Um, But you're not Mm -hmm. kind of trying to you know, grab into ice cracks and use ice ice, ice axis to climb up the vertical surface. It is it is still manageable. Um, yeah, yeah. And so then after the second step, you get to the third step, and then there's just kind of walking up the, the summit face and hopefully getting to the top. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're actually only in, this, in, the, in the itinerary budgeting 12 days for the ascent, right? Yeah. Because wow. there's, there's wow. days on either side, which is very different from... You know the the six to eight weeks that you might normally put. So this is a three week itinerary. Uh, once you add in yeah. the, a little bit of the travel time uh, with Kathmandu, yeah. so that's that's the, that's okay. the plan.
0: Wow, it's it's um it sounds really interesting to hear about it from this side because obviously the Nepal side is, is hugely covered in obviously films <coughs> in documentaries and you know and all sorts and I think the Kumbu icefall now is probably you know probably known by most people when they just hear about everest but I think the 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 tibet side is is super interesting because it's got these whole other challenges attributed you know to, to, to going that route you know from the lightning ascent in driving up to I had no idea about you know driver's camp for example you know it's it's um' You know, I've heard of some, some pretty high passes before, but I've never heard of you know, a driver's camp that's, that's 5,200 meters. It's incredible. Um,
1: so I mean, One, yeah, the, one the, thing the, I'm excited about is I've heard that there are some climbers who are trying to develop another route on the south side uh, that uh-huh. goes around the Kumbu Icefall. I'm, I'm sure there have been kind of very technical ones, but I think they're trying to establish yeah. a route that wouldn't involve the icefall, but that would work for commercial expeditions. So I I think that that's worth some investment to kind of finding things that aren't going to put climbers, uh, climbers is one thing, but, you know, these are workers who are kind of taking a lot more risk to set up the camp for the climbers to take a much smaller risk. So something that would be better for the workers, I I think, is is really worth worth spending some time on. Yeah, definitely.
0: You mentioned the Seracs, which are basically just giant ice towers, which, you know, like it, it's terrifying just thinking about being on the Serac because if you when you didn't realize you're actually on one it's you know you, you can get this real sense of fear all of a sudden it just comes from nowhere because you re- realize the precariousness of it but um, one thing I definitely wanted to draw out actually was your your other mountaineering achievements now we've spoken about Mont Blanc but you've also tackled Matterhorn and, and summited it as well so can you tell us a bit more about that yeah please?
1: so you know when you're in <clears throat> when you're in the Alps and you look around at the mountains the Matterhorn it's just such a beautiful mountain Um and yeah. I remember seeing him thinking, that's crazy to, to think about going up that. but but there's just this kind of step-by-step process as you get into climbing where you can get more comfortable with exposure and And you can realize that you can do certain things without really taking big risks if you're if you're taking the steps and, and you have the assistance. Because yeah. um, you know you can watch those free solo climbers, and I, I never intend to do that. Um, yeah. but when you when you look at how they approach it, I don't think some of those guys are taking massive risks. Some of those guys, they're they're very well planned in what they're doing, and they've dedicated the time and the effort that they understand the outcomes when they take certain actions. Um, So I don't ever intend to move in that far, Um, but it is is possible to climb uh, Matterhorn reasonably safely. The bigger issue Mm -hmm. with Matterhorn uh, these days is it's a very popular climb. So climbers yeah. above you can kick rocks and then, and then hit you, right? So um, my, my recommendation on Matterhorn is to hire a local Swiss guide because when you stay on the Swiss side and you're in the Swiss hut, the Swiss go first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just understood. So if you, if you train to go fast, um, then you're going to be in the top, let's say, four or five climbers and there's fewer uh-huh. rocks coming down on your head
0: <laughs> Come down yeah 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 it so, makes sense but I, I think also also as well so, so just to, to clarify so you, you're you the first we think you're the possibly the first afghan to have summited the Matterhorn. no
1: we? so so on matterhorn i was hoping to say that um uh-huh. but conveniently or inconveniently for me uh the day before the ascent there was a iranian guy uh and so his English wasn't great. My Dari was worse. We did a little English, a little Dari, a little German. Um, but he made it clear to me that he has an Afghan friend who who climbed Matterhorn before me. <laughs> so, oh, right. Apologies. No, no, it's great. I think it's, a, I think it's a great story. It's part of the journey where... I was like, oh, maybe I'll be the. Because f- I'm, I'm pretty sure there's an Afghan who climbed up Blanc before me. So I wasn't, wasn't assuming that. But Matterhorn's a tough climb. It's like, oh, maybe I'm the first Afghan. He's like, nope, my friend. Uh- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so I, I became friends with him on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, and oh, cool. and I, I think he's a very strong climber. So I, I'd love to do some yeah. climbs with him in the future. And I, although I might be the first up Everest for a mix of financial and climbing reasons, I, I have a lot of respect uh-huh. for him. As as an Afghan climber, there's a lot of Afghan climbers out there who are really really strong. Um, yeah, yeah. But but I do believe that I was the first Afghan to summit Denali. Uh, I had the forest rangers kind of check the logbooks, <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. far enough away from main Afghan centers of living that that I do. I'm pretty sure I'm the first Afghan to have ascended uh, Denali. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. I, it's uh, apologies for mixing the two. I've, I've I've um. Yeah, I can we call our previous conversations around it? But yeah, no. It's a, I think it's a great story, s- like slab
1: of a, you know, because the mount- the mountaineering community is actually pretty small. So I just happened to be climbing yeah. at the same time as this Iranian guy who, who knew the other Afghan who'd done it. I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the other climber, his name that's is a- Esmeray Nabizada, and, and he puts up some pretty cool climbs on social media. So so definitely worth checking out yeah. his stuff, and I definitely want to get him more involved in developing Afghan mountaineering and climbing uh, as as we go forward.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll see if, if he doesn't mind maybe putting a, an Instagram or Facebook link to um, to his pages or something yeah. in the in the show notes, so we can highlight you know h- highlight kind of you know more climbers like yourself and him to um, to international community because I think it's um, you know it, it's it, kind of we we need to have these kind of inspirational people and leaders in our more in our awareness than kind of what you know what big magazines and, and newspapers and and media kind of pushes out some days. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess it leads me on to my next question is kind of what, what advice do you have for other people who want to climb Everest um, in general, whether that's Tibet or the Nepal side?
1: Yeah, I think uh, just understanding it's a big objective with a lot of different pieces. So so we talked through uh, the technical aspect and the fitness aspect. So I think you do what I did, which is you start small and then work your way up. Um, so you build your skills and confidence, just being uh, out in the mountains over the years, uh, being on the rope teams, being in crampons, being in crampons on mm-hmm. rock and ice. And yeah. and then as you're doing that, just keep on focusing on building your zone two, uh, mm-hmm. your, your base aerobic and, and your mountain chases. That will just kind of keep getting stronger and build year to year. Uh, so I kind of yeah. started that a bit late. I wish I'd started that earlier. Um, but if you, <laughs> if you start that early, you're just gonna be a lot stronger in the mountains. Um, I think another piece of advice that, uh, has made me feel more comfortable is to practice failing. So, you know, you spend a lot of money and you spend a lot of time preparing to do a climb. So it's very easy Mm -hmm. to get stuck in a goal set. So you're so focused on the goal that you're going to take risks. Uh, so I, I was kind of nervous about that for myself because I, I can get pretty goal focused. Um, so one of my first failures was I was trying to climb Mount Hood in oregon Mm -hmm. um and the weather just got really bad and when the guide said hey this weather isn't what i'm liking for summiting let's turn around i said yep let's turn around and and that for me was a very important check mark to make yeah Um, yeah. and the same thing on kilimanjaro on kilimanjaro um, we had kind of limited time and we went like after COVID was there but before the lockdown happened so i had some nervousness about that um and so we're trying to go fast up the mountain and I got really nauseous and my oxygen levels weren't that high and SpO2 and I said, Hey, it's not worth it. Let's turn around. <laughs> let's, let's live another day. Let's not take big risks. It, because there are a lot of guides who, when I talk to about reading the different mountaineering books, or um, they say, oh, no, you can't judge what the people are doing. I say, no, no, I, I can judge. This was a bad decision. <laughs> so I think it's good to read, read these books and, and see when certain people die. There are certain good decisions and certain bad decisions. And I think a good decision is knowing yourself and having a plan with your guide about if I'm not doing well, I'm going to turn around and live. I think that's, that's a good thing to do um unless you're fine with dying and that's your choice choice,
0: (laughs) it's it's such such an interesting interesting concept It's, it's hugely um kind of mature and adult approach of kind of looking at it because we hear about summit fever um that effect when you're kind of you're so focused on getting to the summit that you then end up taking ridiculous amounts of risk um and then that's where kind of you hear about people you know people dying because of it and those i think understanding it as a, kind of a pre-event indicator of like right this is how i'll be feeling however i i must you know i'll put things in place to to stop it from you know fr- from living out you know that kind of like summit chase when when actually the conditions aren't right for it is um, is something huge hugely beneficial to that people you know should should hear about and it should be discussed more because um you're, yeah, because you're,
1: you're also putting your guides at risk exactly know if you don't have control of yourself, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and social social media only ever shows the kind of the summit shots, you know, and I've, I've definitely felt myself guilty of that in the past where I've just been like, I just want to get that summit shot. It's, you know, it yeah.
1: becomes all encompassing, so, but it's, yeah. So my my hiking my hiking, uh, tent mate for Denali had an interesting approach to it. So we went with Alaska Mountaineering School, which is a great organization. They, they uh-huh. run good trips, and they're based in right next to Denali, in mm. so now. So their infrastructure is good. But the reason he chose them, again, counterintuitive, he said, I chose them because of all of their negative reviews. And, and I tried a little. So why, why did you like the negative reviews? He said, well, the negative reviews, of somebody who's going to go and complain, it's not because of organization or food or anything. They're complaining because they got turned around. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, I want to go with the guide company that has the backbone to say, hey, you're a risk to your tentmates and you're a risk to our guides for whatever reason. And it's safer for you and beneficial for us you to turn around maybe they could have summited right yeah there, there's a chance that you could summit but if you have a summit day that's 18 20 hours versus a summit day which is 10 or 12 hours yeah. it's a very different amount of risk that you're creating for yourself and for the team and for the guys definitely uh so i thought that was a kind of interesting <laughs> perspective is, it's such a,
0: a huge huge i mean I'm, I'm just sat here scribbling notes right down right now because that's it's such a good you know piece of piece of advice i think in general you know if you kind of you're looking looking for the kind of the the um information which is going to you know keep ourselves in 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 balance when we're taking so we don't take these risks um yeah there's there's so much there i could unpack you know psych, from psych, psychology to performance you know to to um i think just life life goals in general but yeah. Wow. Thanks. I'm kind of, you know, awestruck now that's, that's uh, can I, am going to be thinking about that for like the next few hours. And I guess so. To, to end with the, the, probably the most challenging question is, is what's next after Everest? Um, a hard one to, to finish up with. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, so I'll make it easy. I think the, the mountain that's most in my mind and probably more important to me than Everest is to climb Mount Noshak in Afghanistan. Yeah. So Noshak is the tallest mountain in Afghanistan. It's 7,495 meters. So it's probably in the top 50 list of mountains globally. Um, certainly there are a lot in Pakistan, India, and China that are taller. But after mm-hmm. those three countries, there's very few mountains at this height. right? So it's a mm-hmm. very, very tall mountain. And I think it has the unique distinction of being the tallest mountain that's been skied up. And <laughs> skied up. So there were these... Uh, Wow, There's a ton of these amazing Polish climbers that do all sorts of things that you would have never thought about, right? So I think in the 70s, a Polish team skied up the mountain, and then they skied down. Wow. <laughs> wow. So some guys went back to try and reproduce that, but I think the snow conditions weren't there. They still made a pretty cool video of the attempt, um, but that that the Polish team did that, I thought, was, was really great. Um, and, you know, the other thing after Everest is just going to be to keep promoting Afghan peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and see, you know, instead of just being in Bamiyan, you know, the security situation now, it is possible to start skiing in a lot of other areas it wouldn't have been before. Um, so really just growing the skiing and, and mountaineering skill sets across Afghanistan and, you know, creating the precursors for for tourism and, and just getting the Afghan people to enjoy the mountains Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. I, I think one thing one thing I definitely saw when when um when I visited Bamiyan um and, and uh, the Central Highlands was uh, potential for tourism, and al- almost yeah, I thought kind of the Alps is so so kind of crowded. Some days you, know, you look at you walk down Chamonix and you can't really find anywhere to to get lunch or coffee or just or you know or just hang out somewhere because it's always so so busy, which is is a good and a bad thing, but when I, when i was in in Burmyat and i was thinking like this has got the same same vibes as Chamonix. it you know it, it's the same it's a beauty it's the the culture the the um the feeling um but i would i would love to see you know kind of central highlands of afghanistan um become become almost like a you know a similar Chamonix because it was um it's got it's so much untapped potential there
1: yeah it's it's a beautiful vision i just love to keep keep working towards that that's that's really what what this is all about for me?
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, great to talk to you. I'm going to make sure that the show notes have got all of the links into the charity, to your background, and where's where's the best place that people can follow your your Everest journey on now on on social media? Yeah,
1: so I think I think the best place is probably on Facebook. So mm-hmm. uh, Afghan Peaks has a page mm-hmm. on Facebook. Uh, we have an Instagram account, so we're doing some stuff there. I'm putting some stuff up on LinkedIn. Uh, but Facebook's the best, and then we do have our website, which is uh, www.afgantiques.org, and there we're accepting donations, um, and you, you'll follow, there's some news clips there about Denali and, and some of the races we sponsored as well.
0: It was really great chatting with Sam and finding out exactly how he planned to summit Everest from the Tibet side. If you want to see how he's getting on, you can find the links to his website and social media accounts in the show notes below. See you next time.